This is episode 50 of Alohomora for September 28th, 2013. everyone it's our 50th episode that's so exciting awesome i'm i'm caleb graves i'm kat miller i'm rosie morris and introducing today's very special guest is jacob say hello jacob hi how you doing great thank you for joining us tell our listeners a little bit about yourself well i am 20 years old i'm from pennsylvania and i'm a junior psychology major a Gryffindor on Pottermore, although before Pottermore came out, I'd always kind of pictured myself as a Hufflepuff, as weird as that sounds. Wow. I don't think we've met many people that have had that transition. Yeah, I have a Hufflepuff shirt and everything, so I was He's like the opposite. Before. He's like the opposite of Eric. Yeah, exactly. So do you, are you satisfied? Which one do you align yourself with more now? Well, I think it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that now I see myself more as a Gryffindor. Okay. So. It's it's kind of changed the way I think of myself, actually, in a weird way. Two years ago, I was put in that house. Well, yeah, I that's, support it. that's what happened to me. I always thought I was a Hufflepuff, and then I got sorted into Ravenclaw, and I was kind of like, oh, yeah, this fits me a little bit better. So. I mean, I kind of think as Gryffindor is the jock house, as most people do. And, like, <laughs> I love sports, <laughs> but I can't play them at all. But I You're follow all just them, badges like... in disguise. <laughs> oh, is that it? <laughs> We're all wearing costumes. Yeah. Um, I am not, because Hufflepuff is clearly not the house for me, but... <laughs> Hufflepuff's my third house. Um, but, yeah. Anyway, so I just want to remind everybody real quick that we're going to be covering Chapter 12 of Goblet of Fire, the Triwizard Tournament today. So, for a maximum enjoyment, be sure to read that chapter before listening to this episode. But before we get to that, as usual, we will be going back to our discussion from the previous week, which has been, you know, it's chapter 11, but for me, I haven't been here for a very long time because I've been busy doing my uh, master's dissertation, which is now done and out of the way, thank God. Woohoo! Woo! <laughs> thank <laughs> um, God. <laughs> but I've been listening to every week and you guys have had some really interesting discussions, including what was going on from last week. So a lot of the discussion... Um, that is mainly on the forums, um, has been talking about the uh, the concept of Muggleborns in Durmstrang. Um, and this is a comment by Bellamort, or Bellamore, if you're French, um, and it's echoed by many of the people on the forums. And it says, Regarding whether or not Durmstrang could actually refuse to teach Muggleborns, I don't actually believe the government would allow that to happen any more than they would allow Muggleborn children not to be trained in the magical arts. An untrained witch or wizard is a threat to the international statute of secrecy, thank you, um, not to mention a danger to the community they live in. There must be some international law in place that requires muggle-borns to be trained so that they do not pose a threat. I guess it's plausible that perhaps they could go to school elsewhere, I just don't think it's likely. Do you guys follow that idea? I, I mean, I understand the reasoning, but I think that is assuming that all governments are... Um, value-ridden, as this person suggests. Right. Um, what about Ariana? Not to, like, jump ahead here, but her mother purposely kept her out of school. She didn't go to school. Someone refresh my memory. I think she claimed that Ariana was a squib and therefore wouldn't need magical teaching. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Or 
I think she was maybe like the event had already happened before she reached school age um so it prevented her from needing kind of magical education um right yeah but it's an interesting thought i mean they like the they knew that she was there so someone could have gone and checked on her right um, has it been ex- said explicitly that Durmstrang doesn't have muggleborns no. i don't think it has no. this is i think okay. that's the point of this discussion we were trying to work out whether it was um, because it, it, it's something that Draco claims, I think that you know that they have a different view of Muggleborns, um, right? And the whole mudblood mm-hmm. concept at Durmstrang. Okay. The only thing, the only, and this is a really good justification that I would maybe be willing to believe that they would have to accept Muggleborns is because it would be involved in complying with the international statute of secrecy. Because that is an excellent point, right? Um, because otherwise, they are a danger to that um, breach. I agree with that. And then, I mean, I know that it's kind of the stereotype that that school is, you know, darker and only teaches the dark arts or puts the emphasis on the dark arts. But we don't really know that. That's just Draco's kind of hopes and wishes for the school. Yeah, people associate um, Durmstrang with Grindelwald. um, But Crumb says later that he, that, you know, it's kind of a, a gone by thing that a lot of people don't do it. Just certain people there follow him. And like he said, mark down his, um, sign in their books and stuff. I think crumb more echoes the modern day view that more things are tolerated and that other people just try to look tough by showing that they supported Grindelwald, even though they had no idea what he was about. And just because he went there, I mean, doesn't necessarily mean that he was always that baddie. I mean, look, look at Voldemort. Okay. Like, he ended up not being a great guy, but at some point he was a seemingly innocent child. So, like... I always got the, the impression you know? that he didn't do anything bad in school at all and just kind of bided his time. Yeah. Yeah. I think he probably did bad things at school. He was just better at covering them up because he knew that he needed to to be able to get out of school and take right. up the power. I mean, yeah, but- we know that the whole Chamber of Secrets was opened while he was at school. All of that kind of stuff. Right. Um, um, so this is a comment from The Lost Diadem, and it says, In response to Eric's question about how Voldemort became a darker wizard than Grindelwald when Durmstrang teaches the dark arts and Hogwarts doesn't, I always saw the prevalence of the dark arts at Durmstrang as a result of Grindelwald's power. I get the feeling that Grindelwald might have had a much broader base of support in the countries he was powerful in than Voldemort ever had in Britain, so he was able to influence the school. Deathly Hallows says that Durmstrang was famous even while Grindelwald was there, for its un- unfortunate tolerance of the dark arts, which to me makes it sound as though it became even more tolerant of them in the later years. Um, and that's Deathly Hallows, th- page 356, I'm guessing. Um, I think that Grindelwald himself contributed to this growth and in acceptance of dark magic. So that comment's basically saying that whilst Durmstrang may have already had kind of some leanings to the dark arts, it's actually Grindelwald himself that made it kind of solidified within the school rather than the school kind of breeding it into Grindelwald. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like people saying that all Germans are Nazis. You know, like, it's the same type of comparison. I mean, not, you know. Maybe um, people in other parts of the world, like where Durmstrang is, think that Hogwarts is a dark place because Voldemort was churned out there. We don't Mm. really know. That's true. That's, that's true. Unlikely, that's but... True. 
And we also have to think that it seems like a lot of things just sort of came together for this perception of Durmstrang because you obviously have Grindelwald and then you have um, Karkaroff come in as headmaster, a former Death Eater, seemingly not long after Grindelwald has left Durmstrang. So that definitely propelled the um, at least condoning of Dark Arts. Do you think it has anything to do with their location, seeming as they're so far north and kind of isolated and out there, like it's a good place to hide away? Um, I mean, I think that may have been, like, a tool by Joe to sort of, like, emphasize that. I don't know if that's necessarily the reason that they are. Right. I'm just trying to think where we would place Durmstrang, because, I mean, Crumb himself is Bulgarian. Um, lots of people have been talking about Russia, um, and there was a comment, I, I can't remember who it was now, unfortunately, but, um, kind of referencing the the whole idea of um Russia, you know, banning gay relationships and everything at the moment. Um and that kind of linking to the Muggleborn thing and maybe they could literally le- legislate and say no um no Muggleborns in Durmstrang in a similar way. Um so you do have to kind of realize that it will be in another country is not going to have the same ministry as uh, the Ministry of Magic and it will have different leanings. Um, so it could very well legislate against Muggleborns if they wanted to. Um, and if, you know, the whole country has a, a darker, um, darker magic base, then that might actually be true. That's a comparison I never thought about, um, with the Olympics and all that stuff that's going, you know, that's currently going on. Yeah. I never thought about that link before. It's interesting that you can still make links to popular culture and, actual culture today when this book was written you know however many years ago now it's still going on um so the next comment is from pigwidgeon um and it's still talking about Durmstrang, but looking at a slightly different idea about it um and it's the concept of draco talking about Durmstrang and whether or not he would have fit in at the school had he gone and it says i also think that draco would get his butt handed to him at Durmstrang. he's a small kid compared to many of the other boys at the school and they seem a lot tougher he le- uh, he'd learn his place really quickly and probably lose a lot of his stuck-up attitude and try to blend in with the crowd. That is unless Lucius is friends with some Northern European Death Eaters that have kids that Draco can make his bodyguards. I'm not sure if they'd take the take the attitude or not, though. It'd be interesting to see Draco in that situation. Yeah, um, I've always said that I don't think Draco is the big baddie that you know, he comes across to be that most of it is fear and um, all of that. So I, I agree with this comment. I feel as though he would not be quite the person he is if he was it was a drum string. I still don't think he would try to blend in with the crowd. He's definitely one of those people that needs to stand outside of the crowd. Well, yeah, I mean, that's true. But, uh, you know, the whole the rest of it here, I definitely think that he would get his butt handed to him (laughs) to quote this quote. (laughs) I think if he tried to show that he was really skilled in the dark arts, he would, but I'm sticking to my th- thought that um, Durmstrang isn't really as bad as we think it is. But, I mean, it's not a prison. I mean, we're talking about it like it's a prison, kind of. <laughs> that's, no, yeah. that's that's true. And, I mean, after Karkaroff left, um, it probably changed quite a bit from whatever it was at this point, too. Leading on from this comment, um, 
in in direct relation in on the forums um we have stone hallows talking about the concept and saying this is an interesting thought and it led me to think that maybe we are on the wrong track with the whole Durmstrang and grindelwald thing it's possible that like i was saying before grindelwald is just as bad as voldemort but we don't see the horror as much because it was in another country perhaps in that country people would react just as violently to supporters of grindelwald as we see the trio and others react in our story I'm sure there are supporters that would agree with him, just like Voldemort's Death Eaters, but a lot would also disagree. And like said above, they are going to be a lot bigger than Draco, and certainly able to knock him down a few notches. So that's kind of going with what you were just saying, Jacob, that we're only seeing this through kind of our Death Eater tinted glasses. Um, <laughs> not everyone is split into good guys and Death Eaters, as Sirius later says. Um, and we're seeing this whole... Grindelwald was an ultimate evil thing, but we're not looking at the resistance to Grindelwald, which we know was in existence because obviously Dumbledore stood up to him. Is that going to be the next like marketing thing that Warner Brothers puts out? Death Eater tinted glasses? <laughs> what would that look like? The world would be black. I hope they'd have all of the markings on like the Death Eater masks. They were quite cool. Be oh, like yeah. the Wraith world. Yeah, <laughs> you'd see all the other Death Eaters. Huh. We'd be called. This the just Baltimore. made me. This just made me think, though, like, what we're exploring here with these comments, this is totally what, if Joe was to going to write another book. Yeah. Not a prequel to Harry's story, like with the Marauders, because I still don't think she will ever do that. But yeah. this is like a completely different story where, I mean, she could, to I totally could see her writing this book. Definitely. If you're going to write a different Grindelwald story, you need story. a different bad guy. And she's already got a ready-made fight against evil that she could talk about if she wanted to. But guys, she's already writing Fantastic Beasts. Right, so. but that's not going to last forever. I'm like, I, I, I'm lighting her up. Joe, I'm telling you what, what your next project is. That depends is. on how many movies it's going to be. Right. Which but we still don't know. She she clearly can multitask. She's got the screenplay and more um, um, Galbraith. Galbraith books coming on the way. Yeah, but those are already done. Those are already written. One more is written. Right. Well, how do we know it's only going to be not only Oh, two? she's going to write more than two of those. You don't yeah. know that. Oh, yeah, I do. Definitely. Dete <laughs> mystery, detective novels. Did she tell novels. you? Yeah, we talked about it last night. But okay. No, but in actuality, mystery, detective novels, no, it's not going to stop it, too. It won't. No, I mean, that's true. But even if she were to do that, it probably, I mean, look how long it took her to break between Potter and this. So let's, let's pretend there's two movies. So that's about five years. So <clears throat> then we're looking at 2018. So it'll be another five years from that. I'm going to so, live for a long time. So 2023, <laughs> if she even decides to do it. So we're looking at at least 10 or 12 years. So it's fine. I'll wait. Don't hold your breath. Yeah. I will. Okay. Start I'll now. Be seven I'll time you. Camping out for the Grindelwald movie. <laughs> <laughs> I would so be there. Just It'll saying. be our kids. <laughs> the next generation camping out for the next generation of Potter books. <laughs> My kids will be in their 20s if I ever get around to having kids. I'm a lot older than you guys. Don't forget Go ahead. That's no reason for them not to camp out. <laughs> no, that's very true. Okay, moving on to a lighter discussion. Um, another great point from last week's episode was the Ron and Percy comparison. And this is a comment from Cassandra1447. And it says, Great comparison, but I think Percy and Ron have very different focuses. Percy focuses on status and appearance, while Ron is concerned with comfort and having functional nice things. Percy wants to be successful and uh, respected, especially by his peers and superiors, while Ron wants a nice life. 
And kind of directly linked to that is a comment by Lily Rose. And it says, I actually think that Ron has an interest in status and, uh, sorry, has as much interest in status and appearance as Percy. What he sees in the mirror of Erised, his heart's desire, is not only being head boy and Quidditch captain, but being better than his brothers. When Ginny dates Dean and calls Ron out on his lack of experience, he brazenly dates Lavender, not because he likes her, but because he wants the status symbol of having a girlfriend, even to the point of hurting his best friend. His anger at the dress robes is not for lack of comfort, but because they are not as nice. His attitude in selecting a date for the ball and his attempt to pick the best girl there, Fleur, shows that he's not looking to have a good time uh, with a nice girl, but he just wants a good-looking girl so as not to look like a loser. Percy and Ron's ambition is the same, but because Ron is more accepted by his family and tied to the Order because of Harry, he tried to outshine everyone by rising in the Order rather than in the Ministry. I think one of the reasons Ron le left Harry was because he thought the quest would be glorious and easy, and it turned out not to be either of those things. So some two very different views of who Ron Weasley really is. What do you guys think? I agree with Lily Rose. Um, he definitely has interest in status and appearance. Um, I still think in a different way than Percy, though. Yeah, I agree. Um... Ron definitely wants a good, cushy, happy life, um, but he has no interest in really working for it. Yeah, he wants um, he wants it handed to him, and Percy's yeah. the opposite because he doesn't mind getting his hands dirty, so to say. I mean, this is going to sound kind of controversial, but I think that Ron and Percy, like both of them said, their their goals are kind of the same. But Ron seems to complain a lot, and Percy just puts his head down and does the things he needs to do to get ahead. Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely true. Yep. Completely. Do you agree. think that Ron has more to complain about than Percy, though? I mean, there's a difference between being the third son and the sixth son. Um, in so no, far not as necessarily. Opportunities because Percy him. followed Charlie and Bill, and they were pretty popular and successful. So Exactly, so yeah. he had a lot more to live up to. Ron had the t he was following on from the twins, so he just had to get by. <laughs> also, the implication... I don't know, the, the implication of, like has more to complain about, just, I don't know, that doesn't, like, sit well with me, because I think, like, I just, like, you gotta do what you gotta do, like, you can't just sit there and complain about it. He complains a lot in this book. <laughs> right, Jeez. of course, he does, which is why he's so annoying for me a in this pain book. pain in the butt, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I think I agree with both of the commenters. Um, I think it's Hermione that says about Ron kind of wanting to outshine Harry at moments, isn't it? Um... Like he wants to be, he wants to just not be the sidekick for once, um, and because he's got all of these older brothers who have done amazing things, I think he does feel that on his shoulders. Um, he feels like he can't shine as much because they've already, already, you know, achieved everything. Um, the thing well, is, he's lazy. There's like no yeah. reason he couldn't be that amazing person he wants to be. He's just lazy. <laughs> but he does go out for things like the Quidditch role and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't. Yeah, like just finally in by. his in his sixth year. He didn't have the opportunity before that, did he? Why not? Because, Wood was there I mean, for that Harry position. only got it in first year because he's Harry. Yeah, but if and we are... There were no roles on the team before that. They didn't actually... There were the rooms, yeah. I, I'm under the assumption that they held tryouts every year. Um, I don't think so. If they had the, the working team, I don't think they would have held tryouts to replace anyone. Um... I don't know, because we always held tryouts um, in my high school, regardless of whether you were on the team the year before or not. 
but this is Hogwarts. <laughs> I don't know. I just I I would have thought we would have heard about it sooner if it was well, done. He didn't get a really good broom until fifth year for his own prefix gift. So, right. He kind of lacks self confidence in that way. So, getting the broom, the um, I don't want to go into um sexual innuendos, but getting that, you know, probably helped his self esteem a bit. Sure. <laughs> I miss Is Noah. Noah here? I miss Noah. He was <laughs> oh. my favorite host. <laughs> We'll try and make more sexual innuendos in his honour in the future. <laughs> but yeah, I don't think... Don't hate on Ron. He's not that bad. He's just... In this book he is. But he is bad. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, well, moving on from Ron to a different Weasley sibling, um, there was a, also a big discussion about Ginny possibly being seen as spoiled. Um, and there's loads and loads of different comments um on the forums about this, and I've picked one that is slightly different from the rest of them. Um, so if you agree or disagree with this comment, definitely make your way over to the forums and join in the conversation. But this is a comment by The Pensive, um, and it says, I do not think she is spoiled at all. In fact, quite the opposite. I feel like she gets coddled and overprotected by Mrs. Weasley because she is the only daughter, and apparently Mrs. Weasley really wanted a daughter. And so in many ways, oh, sorry, and so in most ways, she has it worse than Ron and the other boys. We get to see her complain about this a few times in the books. Often we see Mrs. Weasley trying to keep Ginny away from the action, telling Fred and George to set a better example for her. Even at Diagon Alley, the trio shop together, but Ginny is always taken by Mrs. Weasley. She is not allowed as much leeway as the others. I would be tempted to say it is a gender thing, but then Mrs. Weasley has no problem with Hermione going with Ron and Harry, so it seems to be a Ginny-specific protection. I, so this way, she's not I, spoiled, I am, she's just coddled. I get that, but I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. Like, I think she's still, in a way, spoiled. But yeah, I agree that Mrs. Weasley does, like, coddle her in some ways. But I still think she's spoiled in some ways, naturally. Not because of, like, some other reason. I think that, I mean, as the youngest, I'm not, like, the youngest of seven or whatever. I'm the youngest of two. But, um, you know, my mother treated me very much like this when I was younger too, it's just my brother was older and more responsible, got to do more things on his own. And I always stuck with my mother. And I think that would be the same regardless of if I was a boy or a girl. So I think that that's what's happening with, with Ginny here. How different do you think the Weasley household would be if they never had Ginny? Because I have a friend who has three younger brothers it's, it almost seemed like they kept trying to have a girl, but it just never happened. And it's such like a boyish house. Like they, they love football and they watch it every Sunday. Um, stuff like that. I can't even imagine what their house would be like if there was the youngest, <laughs> a youngest girl, you know? I think Mrs. Weasley would have a lot more gray hair. <laughs> Poor woman. I do think she would coddle her youngest child, no matter if they were a girl or a boy. Like, if it if it stopped at Ron, I think it would be Ron that was always being protected. Yeah, um, I agree. But then Ron and Ginny are only a year apart, so I don't see why she treats them quite as differently as she does. Um, but in regards to Ginny being spoiled, I don't see it. Um, her attitude, I don't think, shows any kind of like expression of being spoiled. She knows that she's coddled and she will want to be her own person. Um, and even like 
in terms of physical items, she's always got secondhand stuff, even if it's not hand-me-downs from her brothers, um, because they can't afford anything else. Um, she's not kind of... She doesn't see everything that needs to be gifted to her um, in the way that being spoiled would mean. Um, so yeah, I I disagree with you guys if you thought that she was spoiled. Um, speaking of uh, hand-me-downs, um, do you guys think there's like financial assistance from like the Ministry in the Wizarding World? Like there must be. Well, um, Dumbledore mentions it to Tom Riddle that there's a fund for helping yeah. with Hogwarts stuff. I figured that was just because he was an orphan. You know. Just because he was an orphan that he got that. No, I think that would be for anybody who was... Um... Think about, like, Hermione. Would you... Would they, would she have been given money from the government, or would they have had, like, some kind of exchange rate from Muggle money? An exchange rate. Yeah. Because I think we've we've seen her parents exchanging money at Gringotts. Well, I'm not okay. talking about Hogwarts specifically. I'm just talking about living because that at one point the Weasleys had seven kids in the house, wouldn't they have? So that's a lot of mouths to feed with only two parents, one of them working, the other one not. Yeah, but don't forget they can transfigure food. So if they have food, they can transfigure it into more food. They just can't make food appear. So you wouldn't need money to buy to buy food or anything like that. I'm not sure if that's true, but that's another discussion, I suppose, <laughs> about science. In but the I think that's world. partly why the burrow is where it is as well. I always saw them as being relatively self-sufficient, um, keeping chickens and all of that kind of thing. I see. Um, okay. Which, I mean, there would be some kind of cost in upkeep, I'm guessing, but not as much as you would if you were living it in a muggle life. <laughs> right. I don't know, but anyway, that's the end of our comments from last week. There's obviously a lot more out there that you guys can read um, if you go to our forums or look at the discussion on the um, episode post from last week's episode on our main archive. And speaking of last week's episode, we're going to jump into the podcast question of the week responses. And I believe this question was Caleb's with some influence from Eric. Is that yep. how this worked? Okay. Okay, so the question says that in the chapter, so last week's chapter, um, chapter 11, it says, We hear Amos talk to Arthur about the situation with Mad-Eye Moody, uh, the lead-up to less fortunate things for Mr. Moody. But we never find out what exactly happens between he and Barty Crouch Jr., how was Crouch Jr., who was locked up in the basement for so long, able to subdue and incapacitate one of the greatest Aurors to ever live? And there was a lot of responses. Um, a lot. <laughs> I think this was one of the most popular questions of the weeks we've ever put up. Um, Virtual high five to Eric out there. <laughs> that's right. Good job, buddy. Good job. Um, our first comment here comes from Maureen. It says, um, I agree that Barty Crouch Jr. probably overpowered Moody while he was asleep, but that doesn't completely explain how, is it, how he was able to get past the defenses, other than the dustbins, that I assume Moody would have set up. After all, shouldn't constant vigilance apply even while Mad-Eye is asleep? My best explanation is that Barty Crouch Jr. is a very powerful wizard in his own right. We only see him at his most vulnerable, but he was able to throw off the Imperious Curse and kill many people, including his own father. I would like to take this moment to point out that we have never heard Mad-Eye Moody say constant vigilance, only Barty Crouch Jr. That is very true. <laughs> wow. 
That is very true. So huh, one of those catchphrases that we think he about. He doesn't ever movie. say it in Order of the Phoenix. I don't think so. He has no reason to because he says it during the lessons. Huh. So that, if you think about it, which I had never thought about that, that <laughs> changes the entire meaning of that phrase, really. Yep. That's one of my favourite things about this book, is looking at all of the things that we associate with Moody, but are actually not Moody at all. And all of those things that we think, you know, are his kind of staple character um, character tropes um, aren't actually him at all. And there is actually, you can see a difference between his character in this book and the Moody we get to know in later books, if you look closely. Which, I mean, is our job, so we will yeah. definitely be looking closely. <laughs> I so, think that... I was sorry, just going to say, I think that, Matt, I probably did use that phrase, but good research by Barty Crouch Jr. and Wormtail yeah. and Voldemort obviously led them to, you know, acting more like Moody, like the hip flask thing, which worked in mm. Crouch's favor. Good point. I assume that Crouch Jr. would have met Moody before he went to jail. Um, being the son of Crouch Senior, he would have, you know, been with that kind of ministry background, um, and would have known Auras and known their whereabouts and what they do and how they act. Um, this makes me think of um, in Inception. Have you guys seen Inception? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eames, played by Tom Hardy, was the forger, and he imitated um, his um, the guy's uncle in the dream, mm-hmm. and he looked like him. Yeah. yeah. That just made me think of that. Yeah. And so there was another comment um, by Daniel Sharp that says, For those thinking that Barty Jr. must have been a talented wizard, we have this quote from the chapter, The Madness of Mr. Crouch, when Barty Crouch Sr. was talking to the tree. It says, My son was recently gained... uh, Recently gained? Has recently gained. Never mind. It says, yes, my son has recently gained 12 owls. Most satisfactory. Yes, thank you. Yes, very proud indeed. So clearly, Barty Crouch Jr. was indeed talented. I sometimes think it's easy to forget just what Jr. managed to do over the year. So, I mean, that's that's incredibly true. Um, I mean, it's interesting that we know so little about Barty Crouch before his before the trial scene um, that we see in the pensive um, we kind of, we have this idea of him that isn't necessarily what the rest of the world, the rest of the wizarding world saw um, so yeah, if he is this kind of intelligent son again I'm thinking parallels with Voldemort himself, Tom Riddle at school very intelligent um, kind of secret life behind it we never really find out why he went over to Voldemort. Um, it's one of my kind of most wanted um, questions I w- most want answered is why um, Barty Crouch Jr. decided to join the Death Eaters. Maybe we'll get that. I mean, I hope so. Pottermore. Please, Pottermore. <laughs> I mean, Goblet of Fire has to be coming sometime, right? Has Hopefully to be. soon. Hopefully. <laughs> But we have another. Puffs are supposed to start getting it soon. Yeah, I just said I've given up on Pottermore. <laughs> oh, I think dear. it happened halfway through Chamber of Secrets. I've finished it, but it's just like 
I don't get excited about it anymore. I think, you know, with things like Lupin, there are moments that are really interesting to me. Um, but the whole thing overall, I'm not going to kind of sit there and make potions for hours and hours. I enjoy Pottermore. I don't sit there and, you know, there was a time when you could, like, actually see how many house points you had and what yeah. rank you are in the house, um, where I would make potions a lot because I was ranked, like, 72 out of wow. however many people what? were in the house. I made a lot of potions. Like, <laughs> I, I had a boring computer job, so I would, like, do work, make a potion, do more work, make a potion. Like, that's all I did. Um, but then they took that away and I lost interest because I'm all about, like, I'm a Ravenclaw. I'm all about, you know, whatever. So, <laughs> But yeah, Love if we it. can get a Lupin-like story for Barty Crouch Jr., that would be really interesting to me. But I'm worried that she won't do it because he's a bad guy. And I think we'd find out more about the good guys and the main bad guys. And I don't think Crouch Jr. necessarily counts. I think that what's going to happen is we're going to get small bits for each book and then they're going to go start over and we're going to get more bits for each book and then they're going to start over. Probably. And they're just going to keep adding stuff. So, But back to our question of the week recap. So we have another comment here from Cassandra Vablatsky. It's quite the last name. She says, one other thing worth mentioning, Barty Crouch Jr. was not alone when he attacked Moody. According to Crouch's own testimony in Chapter 35, Wormtail was with him. So oh, it was yeah. two on one and still, quote, Moody put up a struggle. There was a commotion. We managed to subdue him just in time, end quote. True. So it I wasn't still, as easy as we made it sound. Yeah, but then again, Wormtail's not the most... I mean, clearly Crouch was leading this this effort because he's extremely skilled. And Wormtail, while like certainly is capable, is nowhere near Crouch's level of um, skill, I would say. But do you think that could be a way that they actually got inside? I mean, if Wormtail turned into the rat, it might bypass some of the defences that people were talking about earlier, and that could be how they managed to overpower him if he was asleep. I was just going to say, um, yeah, that's possible. Wormtail had to be in his rat form because nobody knows he's alive. Yeah, true. So, um, we have this one final comment here from Supreme Mugwump, and it's it's great. It's kind of a... <laughs> Mind blown when I read it. It says, a question for you guys. Does Moody's magical eye ever go to sleep? Unlike in the movie, he'd have to actually pop it out of its socket to get rid of it. So do you think he takes it out every night like dentures? Does he take <laughs> off his wooden leg too? If so, an eyeless, legless, sleepy Mad-Eye Moody would actually be quite easy to subdue. Very true. I don't think he would put himself at such a vulnerable position as that. I think he would have had all of his safeguards in place and all of his defences. So, I mean, he could take out his eye and take off his leg um, and still feel relatively safe because he's already got all of these protections in place. And if he was eyeless and legless and still managing to give up the good, you know, the good fight, uh, the struggle that caused a commotion and um, like struggle that stopped them from subduing him easily, then, you know... It shows that he's even more powerful than we think of if he can do all of that when he's eyeless and legless. I'm with mm. Caleb, though. I'm not sure that he would ever. He's so paranoid. Like... Yeah, and it says that he's even gotten more paranoid in his old age. Yeah. So, But that's what's already always got me, is that we don't see that after this book. 
He's not but as paranoid it's described, as they make him out to be. Yeah, but it, I mean, it's described by Amos to to, and it's talked in the Weasley house, and I don't think they have any reason to like exaggerate it. But we've seen how Amos talks about Harry. He's not exactly the most trustworthy person. <laughs> Hmm. That's true. It's hard to say. I, I it mean, is. I don't think the magical eye sleeps, and I don't think he takes it out. Yeah. Um, I bet I'm he takes it out exhausted. to clean it. But you know, I can picture the magical eye just like sitting in like instead of like a cup of water, like people put their dentures in <laughs> at night, and like a magical potion sitting on the bedside table, just looking out. Oof, like a you know what? I, of, yeah. Go ahead. I was gonna say, you know what I thought of is um. Gandalf when he's sleeping with his eyes wide open in Lord of the Rings. I was thinking of that too. I would picture Moody to be a guy who sleeps with his his good eye open anyway. You know. Yeah, that's so true. (laughs) It was just really funny. That's all I could picture it. But that's it. So there's probably forty other comments um, from last week's podcast question of the week. So if you want to comment on it, go over to um, you know alohomora.mugglenet.com and give your input. All right, so we're going to transition into this week's chapter discussion. Chapter 12. The Tri-Wizard Tournament. All right, so at the start of this chapter, Harry, Ron, and Hermione are finally getting into Hogwarts out of the storm, but they are soaking wet. And as they're trying to get in, all of a sudden, someone is dropping water balloons, which we quickly find out is Peeves. And I thought, Peeves. Come on, you can be a little bit more creative than trying to get them more wet when it's already soaking wet. And it's funny that he justifies it. He's like, what? I'm not doing anything. They're already wet. Yeah, (laughs) I'm just like, peeves, come on, man. You got to do better than this. Creativity. Not doing nothing. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching. It's the same. It's the same thing. But it does not take long for my homegirl Minerva to yell at him and to end that business immediately. Strangling Hermione on the way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. Ow. I know I know that Hogwarts doesn't really care about their students at all, as we've seen. <laughs> but how are these kids not going to get sick going out in the rain like this? And like, is, didn't in book three Hermione use a spell in Harry's glasses, impervious, to get rid of the rain? Mm-hmm. So why couldn't they have used this on these kids? Because they're just asking for hypothermia and at least colds <laughs> on their first they're night back at school. not outside for that long. And they've got all the fires in the Great Hall, so they'll warm up quite quickly. Well, at least the first years are. And they That's go out true. on the lake, which is genius when it's probably <laughs> very windy and unsafe. And I think it's been proven um, like in the muggle world that you can't get a cold just from being outside. In the in the like rain, so I don't know. I don't know about that. I'd have to I read do. that. I'll find the article and I'll show you. Because <laughs> correlation doesn't always equal causation, so there'd have to be some pretty hard facts. You can't you prove anything. You can only suggest it with data. Or yeah, reject the null. Anyway, I'll stop being less nerdy. Uh, <laughs> start being less nerdy, I should say. Um, so. When they get, they finally make their way into the Great Hall, and the sorting is about to start. And um, Harry, through his narration, notes that this is the first one he has seen since his first year. So um, that's exciting. We're going to get a new sorting hat or sorting hat song. But before that happens, Colin Creevy, Harry's number one fanboy, <laughs> announces that he has a brother. 
Hi, Dennis, who we'll meet in just a second. How exciting for Harry. He's so, so excited. Ecstatic. More fanboys. Yeah. Fan yeah. Oh, my God. Colin would have calmed down a bit in three years Man. or two years. Right? Especially He's... being constantly, like, practically ignored by him. Yeah, I can imagine Colin being, like, when he turned 13, if this was, like, a little bit more realistic, he would have been, like, really emo and year three and year four because well, that's he wasn't liked, did. you know. The actor of the of Colin Creevy in the first movie, the reason why we don't see Colin again is because he kind of revolted against, I think he was actually bullied, which is quite sad, um, but he revolted against that kind of character and against the, hi Harry, um, kind of attitude and turned completely emo for a couple of years. I had no idea, yeah. literally. Like... <laughs> Wait, who played him? Um, I can't remember his name now, but it's well documented. That's why we don't, don't see Colin again after that movie. Unfortunate. I think he's gone back to it recently. I think he's been in some of the uh, conventions, but for a time he was kind of... No, that's the kid that played Nigel. Okay. Yeah, Nigel was a replacement oh. for Colin's right, character. For Colin, right. So the topic comes up for discussion as to whether Dennis will be in Gryffindor like Colin... Um, and I think it's Harry asks, do siblings always go in the same house? Because, of course, he's worried Dennis is going to be overbearing as well. And Hermione points out that no, because identical twins, Pravati and Padma, um, are in different houses. Pravati, of course, is in Gryffindor, Padma's in Ravenclaw. And, and this is obviously, we know this, and we may have even talked about this before, but th- I think we should, like, take a moment to think about this. Like, because this is strange, because... They are identical twins. and But that's you know, identical in appearance, not in personality. Right, and but... how is it determined by personality. Right, but for the most part, I mean, identical twins are very similar in personality, especially if they're raised Definitely in similar not. environments. Nope, completely wrong. Some Absolute. of them are, sure, but some of them are the two most different people no, you can I didn't, meet, even I didn't, if they look the same. I didn't say all of them. I said a majority of them. Perhaps. I, I don't think that's true either. I think, I mean, some of them kind of revolt against the idea that they are the same person and therefore become very, very different. But, I mean, there's, there's a set of twins that live down my street. Um, they are identical, but they are the most different people you will ever meet. Okay. Right. That, that That's kind of what I'm trying to get to. I think you're, you're rushing ahead of me. Because I'm saying it's the majority of the case where identical twins are like that. But there are obviously cases that... Um, where they're not exactly the same. And I think this is a way that Joe, like, put these characters here to show how choices can really guide people differently, regardless, even in a case where, like, identical twins are presented. I'm trying to think of the twins that I have in my family. Um, I have 11 sets of twins in my family, um, which is kind of crazy. And that's only in two generations. (laughs) Um, And my mother is actually a twin. She has a twin brother, so I'm not sure she's relevant to this conversation but um i would say probably only four or so out of the 11 again not counting my mother's so i guess four out of the 10 um i would see as totally and completely different people the other six are definitely more similar than they are different um so i was just trying to think of where i would place them and I, I think, think it's quite interesting that we have two sets of twins within the books. I mean, we've got the Weasley twins and obviously the Patil twins. Um, and they're both identical sets rather than 
you know, twins that aren't identical. Um, I wonder if that's on purpose or I don't know. It's just an interesting idea. If you're if you're going along with what Caleb's saying that it, they are there on purpose to show this kind of choice aspect. Um, I, I wasn't it thinking more sense to be identical. When I was reading this, I wasn't thinking in terms of them being identical, but just them being siblings and being in different houses was striking to me. You know, um, because like in the next book, we learn more about Sirius and him revolting True, from his family. Yeah. So it's kind of not foreshadowing, but it's a bit of a laying the groundwork. Yeah, I with the so. REB conversation. Yeah, but we really don't learn that Parvati and Padma are different at all. They don't really say much or do much in the series, unfortunately. Well, um, Harry, after this discussion comes up, scans the staff table at the head of the Great Hall and notices the missing chair for the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, because obviously they're going to have a new one, so they're starting to suspect who that might be. Um, and then there's this almost throwaway comment that Ron makes, because he's talking about being ha- hungry, and he says, I could eat a hippogriff, which... <laughs> Maybe not the best choice of words, but probably geniusly placed by Joe, because we have just come off of, off of a book where a hippogriff has barely escaped death, and we are at the front of a book that is going to focus on Hermione's efforts to um, fight for the rights of house elves. So I thought it was very, very interesting. Do you guys not have the phrase, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse? Yes. We do. That's, Absolutely. But that's the, what the, this is referring to. Yeah, but it's still insensitive, given the situation. <laughs> sure. Do you think they eat hippogriffs? I no. would hope not. Why not? I think it is literally just a throwaway statement that I could eat a horse, but the magical version, which the closest thing to a magical horse we've seen recently, is a hippogriff. Yeah, well, unfortunately, people eat horses, so I guess that's why I was... Not in uh, this I would, yeah. Definitely well, that's not because it, the horse I mean, scandal that everyone will know about in the UK. That's because it's illegal in, I mean, the U.S. anyway. Yeah, but that um, doesn't mean people don't do it, so. I mean, right. Yeah, so hopefully not, but I guess I wouldn't be too surprised if people, ugh. Yeah, gross. <laughs> During this scene, there's one little bit that I've always kind of pondered over as I've been re- rereading, um, and it's the little bit that talks about Dumbledore um, kind of with his hands together, staring up at the ceiling, um, as if lost in thought. And then Harry goes on to say that the ceiling looks stormy, with black and purple clouds swirling across it. Um, And obviously we've seen the storm outside, but just to have it kind of reiterated here, it just seemed too detailed to not mean anything, Um, even though it's never referred to again, and, you know, there's not really any reason for it. So, like, that's obvious. It just seemed... I don't know. You know, the whole pathetic fallacy thing with, you know, stormy skies meaning difficult times ahead. I just thought, if this is here for a reason, what reason would that be within this chapter, do you guys think? Um, Why the I'm, storm? <laughs> I mean, the the ceiling is... I feel like sometimes it has it is used as kind of a hint as to the character or what am I trying to say? It's more than just a reflection of the sky. It's a reflection of what's happening inside, you know, the school at the moment too. Um, Not necessarily like literally. I've just always felt that she uses it as a, as a device that way. Yes. Um, So in that case, what is this storm all about? 
it's about Moody because he's the one walking in. I think that this is a bit of foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so because I mean, like, even the way he enters, like, it's very like he catches right. everyone off guard. He looks horribly terrifying. Um, mm. No one claps for him. We'll get to that in a minute. But like, I yeah, I absolutely think it's relating to like it's 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 a bit of foreshadowing that about Moody. It's like this very change in environment with the Triwizard Tournament that has all of these dangerous elements to it. Mm-hmm. So, do you think this is a clue to kind of not trust Moody because? If we're if he's got this kind of violent storm going on, and you know he's he's kind of presented as if he's an evil character at this moment because of this storm. I think it. Uh, I don't. I wouldn't say evil. I think it's like to to take. Um, I think it promotes this like harsh, very rough, um, scary but not evil characteristic of him. I think we. W- I think in order to make that you know assumption or argument, we would have to look back at the other references to the ceiling and see what was happening at that point. Sure. I feel like it, it I feel like it could be plausible that it is some sort of, you know, dialogue on Moody and his character, but I'm not sure. It just seems to go against what we then kind of see of Moody for the rest of the book yeah. um until the moment that the you know the big reveal at the end. Right. So it's just interesting that it's happening at this point. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, eventually the first years come in and McGonagall sets up the sorting hat and we get a new song. A thousand years or more ago, when I was newly sown, there lived four wizards of renown whose names are still well known. Bold Gryffindor from Wildmoor, Fair Ravenclaw from Glen, Sweet Hufflepuff from Valley Broad, Shrewd Slytherin from Fen. They shared a wish, a hope, a dream. They hatched a daring plan to educate young sorcerers. Thus Hogwarts School began. Now each of these four founders formed their own house, for each did value different virtues in the ones they had to teach. By Gryffindor, the bravest were prized far beyond the rest. For Ravenclaws, the cleverest would always be the best. For Hufflepuff, hard workers were most worthy of admission. And power-hungry Slytherin loved those of great ambition. While still alive, they did divide their favorites from the throng. Yet how to pick the worthy ones when they were dead and gone? T'was Gryffindor who found the way. He whipped me off his head. The founders put some brains in me, so I could choose instead. Now slip me snug about your ears, I've never yet been wrong. I'll have a look inside your mind, and tell you where you belong. That's not the song that sang when it sorted us. Seems a different one every year. It's got to be a pretty boring life, hasn't it, being a hat? I suppose it spends all year making up the next one. So it mentions that Gryffindor is from Wildmoor, Ravenclaw from Glen, Hufflepuff from from Valleybroad, and Slytherin from Fen. Yeah. What do we think about these things? I have no uh, idea what they mean. I was just gonna really? say I don't know what anything but a Glen. I mean, I, a Wildmoor—that's like a swamp, right? Um, uh, not yeah, quite a swamp. Close. Think like Wuthering Heights. <laughs> yeah. That reference is lost on me. Okay. (laughs) Oh, that's so sad. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Um, 
But I think like well, I think the use of wild is very um, overgrown Gryffindor. But I don't know. I feel like these have to mean something. So what is a fen? Um, the fens, uh, the fenland. Um, hang on a second. I will. Fens look it up are like so more marshy areas, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, Almost swamps. It's it's kind of. Cambridgeshire. It's marshy regions in the east of England. Um, so, to me, um, the the Wild Moor would be kind of maybe Exeter, Dartmoor, that kind of region, southwest. Um, Fenlands would be southeast. Um, Glen is more likely to be north, so kind of more of the Scot- Scotland area. Um, and the valleys are Wales. So Hufflepuff could be Welsh. Um, kind hmm. of, you've got a nice sweep geographically of England there, and Ireland and Scotland and Wales. All of that lot. <laughs> Kat, I don't think you'll complain that Ravenclaw's a herald to the the Scottish Islands, possibly. <laughs> nope, I am perfectly fine with that because that's <laughs> pretty much one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my life. So it was for sure. I'm, I'm down with that. Um, but moving on to more about the houses, there hasn't, there isn't really anything new about Gryffindor and Ravenclaw. I mentioned Gryffindor um, wanted the bravest, Ravenclaw the cleverest, but there is a bit of a different language for the other two houses. It mentions that Hufflepuff is hard workers, which I don't think it mentions it that way in the first book, right? Because Hufflepuff is, I'll take the rest, right? Right. Yeah. And, and most worthy of admission, which is like... So, well, it says that hard workers are the most worthy of admission, right? For Hufflepuff heart, yes, exactly. So that I think that just means that the hard workers for that house. I think this is Joe trying to give us a break. <laughs> we've we've had a couple of years of everyone going, "Oh, no one wants to be Hufflepuff." This is her going, "No, they're the, they're the hard workers. They're the good ones. Come on." <laughs> Unfortunately, I think that is never going to change. People hate on Hufflepuff so bad. I know, but there are so many of us. <laughs> I know. I don't get it. I really don't. I mean, I have no problem with Hufflepuff whatsoever. Hufflepuff and proud. It also <laughs> mentions that Slytherin is power hungry, which is definitely different than what we've heard. I mean, we may have had this idea of Slytherin, but the house, the the Sorting Hat, has not said it this way. Which obviously, using that phrase, is definitely evokes a negative connotation. Yeah, and I like that it's um, you know, power hungry is used in describing Salazar himself, mm-hmm. which. Um, I guess fits in with kind of what we know about him, um, just the little bit we learned from Chamber of Secrets. Mm-hmm. I'm Which kind like. of really, like, I really dislike the way that Joe paints Slytherin in these books. Like, because we hear it from Ron and Harry's mouths that this is the house that's put out more dark wizards than any other house and I can't think of another a dark wizard who has come out of another house besides um, maybe Wormtail, but I don't really see him as evil at all, really. I just think he... Maybe Barty Crouch Jr. We don't know what house he was. Yeah. That's true. Um, but the fact that she puts Power Hungry here, I mean, maybe it's not necessarily by itself a terrible thing to be Power Hungry, but... Everyone thinks of power hungry as doing whatever you need to do to get ahead, no matter who you have to put down. And Slytherin is not necessarily what we appear to be a good guy. Right. I think the so. Way, the way I've always thought of them all, which is quite 
ridiculous really is um you know the fairies in sleeping beauty <laughs> where okay. you've got the three fairies who give the good gifts and then you've got the one that wasn't invited and turned up late and caused all of the problems and cursed everyone <laughs> i always see slytherin as that fairy that wasn't invited <laughs> Because oh, no. he is the power-hungry evil person that no one really wants around, but they have to put up with because he's always making problems. <laughs> See, as uh, Slytherin is my second house, um, Same. for sure, um, I'm super ambitious, and I'm, I mean, I'm not willing to kind of cut down whoever it takes to get what I want, but I'm definitely power-hungry. Like, I definitely want to be somebody with influence and all of that. Um so, knowing that, I mean, I would hope that nobody out there thinks that I'm evil. Um, but I definitely agree that the way that they're painted in the books, I think, isn't the best uh, way to be painted. But it is through Harry's point of view, and we have to remember that. So. That's what I was just going to say. I mean, he says things like, um, it, they don't look like the most friendly lot. I think he said that in the first book. I mean, mm -hmm. he's constantly setting them up as really bad people. And there has to be, you know, protagonists and antagonists in a book. Yep. So. Yeah. And it also so, makes it more interesting when the antagonists aren't from Slytherin. Right. Breaking the norm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, also, um, it, meant the, um, it mentions the hat is Gryffindor's. It mentions that in the song, which I actually can't remember. Is this the first time we actually learn that the hat belongs to Gryffindor? Because I can't remember if Chamber in Chamber of Secrets if it says that. Um, I like, think this is the first. I think this is we learn that it was yeah. his hat. Because we obviously know in Chamber of Secrets, Harry gets the sword from the hat, and Dumbledore tells him points out that the sword is Gryffindor, but I don't think he mentions that the hat belongs to Gryffindor. I don't think he does either. Yeah, so that's that's an interesting point of information um, that we now know the hat is Gryffindor's, and um, it also mentions the put some brains in me, which is an interesting way of imagining this happening. <laughs> if physical, I mean, obviously it's not, we hope it's not physical <laughs> brains. I've um, always been curious as to how that has worked. Yeah. How they've put their intelligence into an inanimate object. The sorting hat is a Dalek. That's what it is. There's some there's some little thing living inside of it. I don't know what that means. I don't oh. watch it, so You don't know what a Dalek is? I don't watch Doctor Who. Oh dear. Well everybody out <laughs> everyone who watches the show gets it. Um but yeah, so some kind of magical artificial intelligence. Yeah, exactly. Pretty much. Mm. Maybe they shrunk um, like a little person and like <laughs> Put it inside the hat. I mean, who knows? Um, that would be more ethically improper. I mean, wizards and ethics. That's true. Um, Maybe it's like when um, Dumbledore, when with paintings, how you have to teach your painting things about yourself. Maybe yeah. they each taught the hat stuff about themselves. Oh, that's a cool thought. Maybe that's where the idea came for the portraits in the headmaster's office for that. That's possible. Hmm, that's a good, good thought. Call. Good thought, good thought. Um, the feast starts, and as the food is appearing and they're getting ready to dig in, Nearly Headless Nick mentions um, trouble in the kitchens earlier with Peeves, um, how Peeves wanted to attend the feast, and that there was a ghost 
Fat's council, where the <laughs> Fat Friar was uh, down for letting him, but of course the Bloody, bloody Baron just probably mumbled um, and groaned, and that was a no. But the the cool thing here is there's a ghost council. Like, what other things might they discuss about Hogwarts? Everything that happens in the ghost world. Yeah. Everything. And are the other ghosts, um, like, there? Or is it just the four house ghosts because they're the ones that make up the council? Hmm. I see it like a town meeting where they're, like, the selectmen sitting up front. And then the rest of, like, the town or the other Hogwarts ghosts are all in the audience. Mm. You know, visiting and give their opinions and they all have 30 seconds to say what they want to say. I just have this whole thing built up in my head, obviously. (laughs) It's very exciting. But more importantly about this point is it introduces that house elves, in fact, work in the kitchens. And it mentions that um, over 100 do. And... Um, there's this comment by Nick, and it clearly, like, dates his, like, it's dating for when he was alive. Like, an idea that would have certainly been a common one for people back then that says that's the mark of a good house elf, isn't it? That you don't know it's there, which is so, so wrong to say. Um, and obviously throws off Hermione. She's very upset by it. It's what people would have said about servants in, you know, Victorian era before. Right. Um... But it's obviously very problematic to say. Yes. But a I'm very like, good div- good use of Joe to introduce the house elves element in Hogwarts. I'm wondering, mm-hmm. though, like, how... We know food can't be magicked. So right. where did they think it came from? Think about it. I can't believe it's not mentioned in, like, Hogwarts of History or something. Right. That's how a good Hermione point. How not know? That's a good point. She's definitely read that book. I mean, obviously. Huh. It's just obviously considered, you know, such a minor detail that it's not even considered important in that book. That's Mm -hmm. how little they think of house elves. Huh. I'd never thought about that. That's depressing. Would you guys join (laughs) SPEW? Um, I don't know. Like... That'd be hard to say for me back at that age. Yeah. They enjoy their jobs and they like what they're doing, so. Right. There's clearly, like, issues elsewhere, but, like, yeah, I don't know. Because you're getting into things like, if you're living in a society where there are other races that could exist at the same level as you, like, I'm obviously speaking race, like, other, like, species. That's what I meant. Um, Like, that's, that's a really, like complex thing to consider unless you're really like in it okay so Dumbledore gives his um speech and one of the first things he mentions is that there will be no house cup uh which obviously um creates a very big stir and reaction of the students and lets us know that something is very different about this year and before he can really get into explaining what's going to happen we get the scene where Moody enters um I think it's very um appropriate and very good use of text by Joe that a flash of lightning welcomes him and that's what shows the students his face which the quote from the book is every inch of skin seemed to be scarred and we also see this electric blue eye I mean he's presented basically as a monster well and too if you think about the fact that it's lightning that introduced him and Harry has a lightning scar um Hmm. lightning is kind of seen as like the mark of evil um right and I think that this is, again, some sort of, like, clever way of her using 
the influence of the ceiling and the the weather outside and all of that for the symbolism, like a clue as to who Mooney really is. Right. So. Today's OGM. OGM. Obligatory genius moment. Yep. <laughs> Totes. And it's funny because I was just thinking about this. I was looking it up about what lightning symbolizes mm-hmm. and it's the loss of ignorance. Huh. So, I don't know if that means anything significant to us, but thought it was interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> oh, and it says in dreams, lightning is a symbol of a terrible event and negativity. Mm. I've always associated it with, you know, Frankenstein and that kind of thing. So, yeah, this is a very Frankensteinian moment almost. Yeah, you know, like a monster nice. emerging as the doors open. At- um, and as Dumbledore announces um, Moody as the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, um, sadly for Moody, only Dumbledore and Hagrid applied. Um, but <laughs> maybe not sadly, because Moody, it says, doesn't really seem to care. <laughs> and kind of we talked, we brought up how we don't really necessarily know the real Moody that well. Definitely not in this book. Do we think the real Moody would have handled his entrance differently, would have handled a lack of applause differently? I mean... It's so hard to say because the Moody that we meet after, after he's been imprisoned for a year, is probably very different from the Moody two days ago in this book. I think think he probably would have reacted a lot differently if it was the real Moody at this point. I think maybe he would have been a lot more warm to Dumbledore and Hagrid, but I think Barty Crouch Jr. was just trying to make sure that he didn't look out of place, so he was a bit overacting and looking for dark wizards in the crowd of, you know, <laughs> 11 through 17-year-olds. So the only time we really see the real Moody in this book is in the pensive scene, um, which we will obviously get to however many chapters ahead. Um, but he's very arrogant in that book, in that scene i think you know when he's talking about catching the wizards and he took a chunk of his nose with him and all that kind of thing um so i think like kat said the the version we see after this book is a different moody because he's more humbled by the fact that he was caught and captured for the year and and more terrified i would assume yeah so i guess the the moody that would have entered the hall at this point would have been more arrogant and would have probably been more sure of himself but at the same time everyone's describing as paranoid so i don't know um i don't think he would have been late i've always thought it was weird that he was allowed to enter late and dumbledore didn't comment on it or anything it was just a bit strange so dumbledore finally gets to announce that the triwizard tournament is what is coming to hogwarts this year and he gives a little bit of history on it um Fred yells before he even gives this history, though, because he seemingly already knows what um, this tournament is. Um, and then, because I think is the quote, are you joking? I think he goes, you're joking! Yeah. yeah. And Dumbledore um, <laughs> transitions, wants to tell some joke. Um, but McGonagall is not here for the joke. Does not think this is the appropriate time. So quickly <laughs> I want to hear it. I want to hear it. It's about a troll, a hag, and a leprechaun, a leprechaun who all go into a bar. <laughs> I looked it up. Yeah. It was really long, the one that I found. Oh, somebody made up a joke to go with it, huh? Yeah, I think there were a couple on the website that I looked at. I don't have nice. them in front of me, though. Mm. That's that's funny. Probably not um, as good as a Japanese golfer joke. So Wasn't dirty, <laughs> no. Oh, okay. 
But um, Dumbledore gives us a little bit of history of the Triwizard Tournament. It's 700 years old. It has seemingly always been between the three schools, Hogwarts, Bobaton, and Durmstrang. And it did occur every five years until too many deaths, which makes sense that that would put a stop to things. (laughs) Um, Hey, they're showing that they have feelings, these wizards. That's good. They care about their students. I mean, they did then anyway. (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> um then he um mentions that now it's back because of the hard work that occurred between the department of international magical cooperation and the department of games and sports who handled the recent quidditch world cup so <laughs> well and we suddenly have so much confidence in their ability huh I wonder if we should take, you know, be taking that with a grain of salt. Like that's something I'd never thought of that they're the ones who just put on the the World Cup and this probably will end just the same way. And guess what it does. Huh. There's a lot of detail in this chapter that could be seen as foreshadowing, isn't there? A lot. Yeah, way that you more just than wouldn't see in the first way first yeah, time around. Way more than I ever uh, noticed before. So, and we also learn probably most importantly that um one of the new uh, regulations for the Triwizard were ah, the new regulations for the Triwizard tournament is that the age restriction is 17 years old and older, which upsets many of the students. But then he goes on to say that they think it's because students are that it's unlikely the students below sixth and seventh year will be able to you know cope with the the challenges or whatever. So why not make it for sixth and seventh year students? They did. No, they made it for 17-year-olds. Well, because 17 is the year that you come of age, so... Right, I know that, but it seems like... It's considered an adult risk. Yeah, so I I see what you're saying, Kat. And the reason is because... So everyone who is 17 is at least a sixth year to, like, have that experience, but not all six years are 17. So, like, they I know. So they get the... By making sure it's 17, they get... Um, they cover the basis of everyone having at least six year experience, but also like the legal aspect of being of age. Yeah, but they don't give a crap about legality. So like, I just think that it would be, <laughs> th- what what are the odds that, what, probably 5% of the six years are already 17. So basically they're saying, sorry, if you're, you know, anything but seventh year, you're not going to be able to participate in this. But we're also taking away your Quidditch and all of that. It just seems a little too restrictive to me. I think it would make more sense if it was for sixth and seventh years. Well, it's mainly a tool to make Harry stand out, isn't it? Sure. Make him the underdog. <laughs> sure. But, yeah, I think it makes it. It makes you wonder if all of the deaths have been younger than that. Um, and if you are 17 then you have probably been through most of Hogwarts and know more magic than most of the people that are younger. So you do have a better chance of getting to the end without undue risk. Um, but, I th- but I think that that's proved a wrong immediately by the fact that Harry makes it through. Yeah, but he's got help. Yeah, but everybody <laughs> gets help. As it, you know, as it says that cheating is also a tradition of the Triwizard Tournament. I just think, think about it like, if Crab were 17, he's less able 
then, you know, probably calling Creevy at this point to enter the Yeah, but then Crab's probably not going to be selected by the Goblet of Fire. Yeah, but, I mean, we don't know what criteria the Goblet uses. If they put an age restriction on it, then, you know, I'm just saying, I think it's a little silly. I'm with Fred. I think the whole 17 thing is more important in the Wizarding World than you're giving them credit for. I mean, Mrs. Weasley goes on and on about the fact that, you know, when the twins turn 17, um, like, there is a big thing about that in later books. Um, I don't know. The age of consent type thing, or the age of adulthood or whatever, is seems quite important in the Wizarding World to me. Um, but as Fred, um, is talking about it, he's clearly, he and George are both still upset afterward, but they're convinced they're going to get past this age restriction somehow, um, because they talk about it and then, um, someone, maybe Hermione, or I can't remember who, mentions that Dumbledore will obviously know they're that old, but he points out something that I think could be a bit of foreshadowing. He says, sounds to me like once this judge knows who wants to enter, he'll choose the best from each school and never mind how old they are which implies that when the when the champion is selected it is final and there's no going back from it which mm-hmm. is obviously important to our story right yeah um and that's reiterated later on in a different chapter as well when they say you know can we vote again and they say once you know harry's name's come out it's final you can't go back now it's a contract mm-hmm. right which seems silly because if they're putting an age restriction on it like i don't know i just that the whole the age restriction is just the age line. It's not actually anything to do with the cup. I know, but that would... I mean, if they wanted to prevent people under 17 from entering, then they should have done something with the goblet. But it's a 700-year-old goblet. They probably can't actually tamper with it that much. Yeah, but they were able to reactivate it to spit names out again, so they could right. have potentially muddled with it. Yeah. And Moody creates an entire new school. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, obviously... You know, something can affect it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So we um, we finally reach the Gryffindor common room, and Hermione walks off to the girls' dormitory, um, muttering about slave labor. So she's clearly <laughs> um, still upset about that. And the boys go to bed, and Ron brings up how he's considering entering the tournament if Fred and George find a way to get past the age restriction. Um, Harry doesn't really... Really doesn't really entertain the thought with Ron that much, but he does dream of becoming a champion. Um, he gets these images of it happening, and he mentions he's glad that Ron can't see his dreams. So there's a lot but of foreshadowing not, there. That's not the reason why he's glad Ron can't see his dreams, though, because the last thing he mentions is Cho, and that's why he's happy. Oh Ron yeah, can't yeah, see yeah, his yeah. <laughs> True, but uh, I'd be willing to say Ron, Harry's glad that Ron isn't seeing him imagining greatness. Because I think that's important. I mean, that's kind of their, their that's their conflict in this book. I think I'm that's not sure their conflict. That I think that's their conflict throughout life. Is the well, true. That, you know, it's just highlighted in this book. Yeah, very much. Um, but yeah, that that is this chapter. Okay, so we're going to move on to this week's podcast question of the week, and actually, it comes from our guest Jacob, who just posed an amazing question to us. So we've decided to pass it along to you guys. So the question is, if there were no age restriction, it's very simple. Would Harry have entered the Triwizard Tournament? That's it. And yes justify or no. it. Justify why. 
Tell us why. Um, because I, he I, says now, in theory, that he wouldn't because he doesn't want glory, but if it was a possibility, would he do it? Okay, well, it is now time to end the show, so thank you so much to Jacob, because that was, you know, it's an amazing question, and we've really enjoyed your comments throughout. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I had a blast. Thank you. Great. Good. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, if any of you out there want to be a guest on the show just like Jacob, you can head over to alohamora.mugglenet.com and click on our Be on the Show page. Um, so aptly named there. Um, <laughs> as we always mention, you do have to have appropriate audio equipment. And in the meantime, while you're waiting to hear back, go ahead and subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us some good reviews. We love reading those, as Micah pointed out last week. And you can also get in contact with us on all of the usual sites, such as Twitter, at MN, Facebook, facebook.com slash OpenTheDumbledore, you can Skype us at 206-GO-ALBUS or 206-462-5287. And there may be something else coming in the future that will be a very quick and easy way for you to leave us a message that will get played out on the show. So keep an eye out because there are interesting things coming your way. And don't forget to check out our store, which includes t-shirts, now short and long sleeve, or I guess, have they been there all along? They've been there. Oh, the no. short sleeve have the long sleeve has right. The lo- sweaters have been there, but the long sleeve is new. Correct. Because it's getting cold, you know. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's in most of the yeah. Not in Texas, but in other places of the world. Um, so get a long sleeve shirt, or a toe bag, <laughs> or sweatshirts, or flip flops, water bottles, travel mugs, and more coming soon. There are over seventy five products to choose from. Have and you even- been practicing your announcer voice, cat? <laughs> Since when have you known me to practice my voice? I know, darling, sorry. <laughs> but in addition to these amazing 75 products, now I'm going to stop. Uh, but <laughs> we also have ringtones coming. Kat, more information on that? Yeah, by the time this episode releases, we are going to have an entire page. I don't know how many will be on it. Two, four, 12, 20, I don't know. But there's going to be ringtones available for your mobile devices on alohamora.mugglenet.com. Um, of our glorious theme song. So we've gotten a lot of comments. Uh, we love it. You love it. So why we not have it on it. your phone? They're, um, they're going to be free, but there will be exclusive ones um, only for the people who have our app. And speaking of the app, you can download that. I think it's available pretty much all over the world at this point. Um, prices vary depending on your location. It is $1.99 in the U.S., and one pound twenty nine p in the UK, um, and of course, as I mentioned, that's going to have the exclusive ringtones, and it also has transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and a ton more. So it's definitely you know worth the small investment. Plus, you have all the episodes. So there you go. There you go. Well, that's it for this fiftieth episode of Alohomora. Thanks for joining us. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Rosie Morris. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 50 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore!